1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone and welcome into part 1 of episode 47 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about the history of drug production and trafficking in the Southeast Asian region known as the Golden Triangle. We'll talk about the history of how opium cultivation started in the region, how it became profitable, the rise of militias in the area's drug trafficking, and even the story of one of the region's most notorious drug lords, Kun Sa. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at TheBlackHandPod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. The link's in the description. But without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. As you could probably tell, the crux of today's show is the Golden Triangle region in Asia. So to get into today's episode, we really need to understand what it is. The Golden Triangle is the area in which the borders of China, Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar meet at the confluence of the Ruak and the Mekong rivers. While the name Golden Triangle was coined by the CIA and is commonly used more broadly to refer to an area of around 367,000 square miles that overlaps the mountains of the four adjacent countries. It's a rugged, mountainous area and is sparsely populated. No more than 6 to 7 million people live there, and they belong to ethnic minorities, mostly hill tribes, but also some valley dwellers. The Myanmar portion of the Golden Triangle is by far the largest and poorest, and that is also where most of the opium has always been grown. The Thai sector is very well developed, now mostly urbanized, and no longer produces any opium. And Laos is still an opium producer, but not to the same extent as before. The hill peoples who grow opium in Myanmar today, or until quite recently, grew it in Thailand and Laos, and its history with drug cultivation runs deep. To start, opium was introduced to China by Arab traders during the reign of Kublai Khan from 1278 to 1294. The drug was highly valued for its medicinal qualities and was grown by some ethnic minorities in southern China to raise money to pay tributes to the Chinese emperors. Opium has even been present in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, since as early as the 1750s, when the Kongbog dynasty was in power. While opium as a major cash crop was introduced to the Golden Triangle by the British in the colonial period, when it was grown as a cash crop for the French as well as the British. The British even fought two opium wars against China in the 19th century, which led to the acquisition of Hong Kong and the opening up of the Chinese market for opium in India. The British East India Company controlled vast poppy fields in Bengal, the eastern part of the Indian subcontinent, which today generally corresponds to Bangladesh, the Indian province of West Bengal, and other parts of the colony as well as opium warehouses in Kolkata, Mumbai, and other major cities in colonial India. 
Then, in 1852, the British arrived in Lower Burma, importing large quantities of opium from India and selling it through a government-controlled opium monopoly. And not long after that, opium production increased in the highlands of Southeast Asia. For example, before World War II, around 30 tons of opium were grown a year in the highland of the Shan states, parts of which now form the Myanmar sector of the Golden Triangle. Some of it made its way to China in 1878, and Britain passed the Opium Act with hopes of consumption of the drug. Under the new regulation, the selling of opium was restricted to registered Chinese opium smokers and Indian opium eaters, while the Burmese were strictly prohibited from smoking the drug. Regardless, the British aggressively marketed opium in China, and the result was a ton of addicts. Most of the opium was supplied by India, but some came from Burma, and the French produced it in what is now Vietnam and Cambodia. Then, in 1886, the British acquired Burma's northeast region, known as the Shan State. Production and smuggling of opium along the lower region of Burma thrived, despite British efforts to maintain a strict monopoly on the opium trade. But efforts by the British and French to control the opium production in Southeast Asia were ultimately successful. And while Thailand, formerly known as Siam, was never a European colony, that doesn't mean that it escaped the scourge of the opium trade that had followed foreign rule in neighboring countries. In 1852, Siam's king Mongkut, who had tried to ban the use of opium, bowed to British pressure and began importing vast quantities of the drug from India. Mongkut even established a royal opium franchise, which was farmed out to local businessmen, mostly wealthy Chinese traders. Opium, lottery, gambling, and alcohol permits were up for grabs, and by the end of the 19th century, taxes on these monopolies provided between 40 and 50% of Siam's government revenue. At an early stage, the French also turned to opium to finance their conquest of Indochina. Opium was imported to the region from Afghanistan and India, and the various French drug interests were consolidated under a single government-administered opium monopoly. And by 1900, tax on opium accounted for more than half of all revenues in French Indochina. However, World War II would not only alter the political map of Asia, but also had a dramatic impact on Southeast Asia's opium trade. The war meant that sea routes from India and West Asia had become insecure, which prompted the French to encourage poppy cultivation in the highlands of northwestern Vietnam and Laos. As a result, even Thailand, which had never been a major opium producer, also saw an increase in poppy cultivation in the north, and the old colonial monopolies were gradually abandoned. India continued its production of opium, but on a much diminished scale, and purely to produce morphine and other medicines for pharmaceutical use. But corruption remained a major issue, and domestic problems led to a drastic increase in production, especially in Myanmar. The turning point was the invasion of northern Myanmar by the Kuomintang, or the Chinese Nationalist Party's army, also known as the KMT, who once fought against Mao Zedong's Red Army. Because after losing the Chinese Civil War in 1949, what was left of former Chinese President Chiang Kai-shek's KMT was split into two groups. Most retreated to Taiwan, but a group of rebels from the 8th Army, known as the 93rd Division, retreated to the mountains of Burma along the Chinese border, where they set up a string of secret bases. This is when the CIA even got involved. 
Wanting to stop the spread of communism in Southeast Asia, they made a deal with the KMT. In exchange for gathering intelligence and fighting against the communists, the CIA gave the KMT weapons, money, and other supplies. And before long, due to the weak government in the country, the KMC soon seized control of the border regions of Burma. With the aim of reconquering China from Mao Zedong's communists, but to fund this endeavor, they needed money, so they turned to the opium trade. And there was about to be plenty to go around, because heroin became a major component of the opium trade after World War II. For those of you who don't know, opium is dried latex obtained from the seed capsules of opium poppy plants. Nearly 12% of opium is made up of alkaloid morphine, which is processed chemically to produce heroin and other synthetic opioids, which is where the profitability of the Golden Triangle would come from. In the 1930s, the majority of illegal heroin smuggled into the U.S. came from China and was refined in Shanghai and Tencent. However, during World War II, opium trade routes were blocked and the flow of opium from India and Persia was cut off. Fearful of losing their opium monopoly, the French encouraged Hmong farmers in Southeast Asia to expand their opium cultivation. But after Burma gained independence from Britain at the end of World War II, opium cultivation and trade flourished in the Shan state in the late 1940s, continuing even after Burma outlawed the drug in 1962, which explains why so many armed groups in the Shan states resistance forces who took up arms against the central authorities in the late 1950s, as well as the Myanmar government's own army and local militias, became involved in the complex politics of the Golden Triangle drug trade, the most powerful of which soon became the KMT. They persuaded the Hill Tribe farmers to grow more opium, and then the group introduced a hefty opium tax that forced local farmers to produce even more to make ends meet. And by the mid-1950s, opium production in the Myanmar sector of the Golden Triangle had shot up to 10 to 20 times to an annual yield of 300 to 600 tons or 600,000 to 1.2 million pounds. Another factor in this was Communist China's eradication of illicit opium cultivation in Yunnan by the early 1950s, which also effectively handed the opium monopoly to the KMT army and the Shan state. The war in northern Myanmar also meant that it was too risky to bring traditional cash crops like tea or Tabasco to lowland markets. Instead, it was now safer to grow opium because the traders would come to the villages and buy the raw product there. Myanmar's economy also collapsed following a military coup in 1962 and the introduction of a disastrous policy called the Burmese Way to Socialism. In order to fight Shan State and other insurgents, Myanmar's military ruler, General Ni Win, established local home guard units in 1963 known as the KKY. They were given the right to use all government-controlled roads in the Shan State for opium smuggling in exchange for fighting the rebels. By allowing them to trade in opium, the Myanmar government hoped that KKY militias would be self-supporting as there was hardly any money in the Central Reserve to support a sustained counterinsurgency campaign at the time, and many KKY commanders got rich from the deal. The most infamous of the Golden Triangle drug lords, including Lo Zing Han and Kun Sa, even began their respective careers as government-allied KKY commanders. Zing Han in the opium-growing area of Kokang and Kunsa on the opium mountain of Loi Ma near the Myanmar army's garrison town of Tang Yan. 
but it was really Coonsaw that embodied the militia-run drug trafficking scene within the Golden Triangle. Born on February 17, 1934, he received no formal education, but had military training as a soldier with the KMT that had fled to Burma after the victory of Mao's communists in 1949. In the early 1950s, he formed his first independent band of young men when he was just 16. Soon, his organization grew to several hundred men when he became independent of the KMT. And after establishing his independence, he frequently switched sides between the government and various rebel armies as the situation suited him. In 1963, at the age of 29, he reformed his army into a local KKY Home Guard unit under the control of the Northeast Command of the Burmese Army. In return for fighting local Shan rebels, the government allowed him to use their land and roads to grow and trade opium and heroin. But many government-supported warlords, including Kun Sa, used their profits from the opium trade to buy large supplies of military equipment from the black markets in Laos and Thailand, and were soon better equipped than the Burmese army. And by the late 1960s, Kun Sa was one of the most important and powerful militia leaders in the Shan state. He even held an important pass in Loi Ma, restricting the movements of local communist rebels. And during this period, while he was nominally supporting the Burmese government, he maintained contact with KMT intelligence agents. And through the 1960s, Kun Sa became one of Burma's most notorious drug traffickers. He even challenged the local dominance of the KMT remnants in Shan State, but in 1967, he was decisively beaten in a battle involving both the KMT and the Laotian army on the Thai-Burma-Laos border. In that battle, he led a convoy of 500 men and 300 mules into Laos, but it was ambushed by KMT forces en route. And as the battle was going on, the Laotian army, which was also involved in the opium-slash-heroin trade, bombed the battleground and stole the opium. The defeat not only demoralized him and his forces, but the Laotian army continued to ambush his mule trains for the next few years, and as a result, his military strength declined. And on October 29, 1969, Kun Sa was arrested and charged with high treason for his contact with Shan state rebels. And even though his militia unit was dissolved during his imprisonment, his more loyal followers went underground, and in 1973, abducted two Soviet doctors working in Burma. A division of soldiers from the Burmese army were assigned to rescuing the doctors, but failed, and the doctors were subsequently ransomed for Kunsa's freedom, with him being released in 1974. However, Kunsa's release was brokered behind the scenes by Thai General Kriangshak Chomanen. And after his release, Kunsa maintained a good relationship with Chomanen and even secretly contributed $50,000 to support him in a Thai election campaign. And during the next two decades, from 1974 to 94, Kunsa became the dominant opium warlord in the Golden Triangle. The share of the heroin sold in New York, originating from the Golden Triangle, rose from 5% to 80% during this period, and he was responsible for 45% of that trade. The DEA even assessed that his heroin was 90% pure. And during the height of his power in the 1980s, Kunsa controlled 70% of the opium production in Burma, and built a large-scale infrastructure of heroin refining factories to dominate the market for the drug. He may have once even supplied a quarter of the world's heroin supply. 
but his notoriety led the U.S. government to put a $2 million bounty on him. After his release from prison, Kunsaw went underground and in 1976 rejoined and reformed his forces in a village in northern Thailand close to the border with Burma. And although he wasn't the mastermind of the local drug trade, he controlled areas where drugs were grown and refined. And the owners of the local heroin refineries from Bangkok, Hong Kong, and Taiwan paid him in exchange for protection from his army. But after a combined Thai-KMT army defeated the entrenched communist rebels in northwest Thailand in 1981, American officials began to pressure the Thai government to expel Khun Sa. And in October 1981, a 39-man unit of Thai rangers and local rebel guerrilla fighters attempted to assassinate Khun Sa at the insistence of the U.S. DEA. But the attempt failed, and almost the entire unit was wiped out. Then, about three months later, a 1,000-man force of the Thai army appeared at the borders of his base area. The Thai force was made up of Thai rangers, local paramilitary border police, and several airplanes and helicopter gunships. The battle lasted for four days, with heavy casualties on both sides, and by the end of the battle, Khun Sa was forced to retreat back into Burma. And within a year of losing his base in Thailand, Khun Sa rebuilt his army, defeated a local Burmese rebel group along the Burmese border between the Shan State and northwest Thailand, and took control of the region. He relocated his base of operations to the border town of Ho Main in the Shan State, established a local heroin refining industry, and resumed a working relationship with the Burmese military and intelligence services, who once again tolerated his presence and returned for fighting other ethnic and communist rebels. Kunsa also maintained a cordial relationship with the highest-ranking Burmese general in the region, and established relationships with many foreign socialities and business people. Then, in 1985, he merged his Shan United Army with another rebel group known as the Thai Revolutionary Council, a faction of the Shan United Revolutionary Army forming the Mong Thai Army. Through that alliance, he gained control of a 150-mile Thai-Burma border area from his base at Ho Mong to Mai Sai. But when the U.S. donated several million dollars to the Burmese government for quote-unquote drug suppression in 1987, the Burmese military fabricated reports that were leaked to the Thai press stating that they had attacked and defeated Khun Sa in battles involving thousands of Burmese and Thai soldiers. However, these reports were completely false, and in reality, the Burmese and Thai governments were cooperating with him to build a highway into the region that he controlled. The Burmese army did conduct anti-narcotics operations at the time in many other areas of Burma, but the area controlled by Khun Sa was one of the few areas that wasn't targeted. Despite that, in January 1990, Khun Sa was indicted in absentia by an American federal grand jury on drug trafficking charges. Following his indictment, he was interviewed by a Canadian journalist at his base for the Bangkok Post. At the time, he was the acting head of a coalition of Shan rebel forces called the Mong Thai Army, a force he claimed was made up of 18,000 troops, a reserve of 5,000, and a local militia numbering 8,000. And after the U.S. put a $2 million bounty on him, he imposed a 40% tax on all opium growing, refining, and trafficking, and returned for protection from other warlords in the Myanmar government. He even amassed a supply of locally made rockets and surface-to-air missiles he purchased in Laos to protect against air raids. 
Regardless, in the 1990s, Kunsa's power and influence in the region declined. Part of this was due to the opening of new trade routes for heroin that ran from Yunnan to ports in southeastern China, which reduced his importance as a middleman for the drug trade along the Thai border. Other drug trafficking routes also opened up to India, Laos, and Cambodia, which Khun Sa didn't control. If that wasn't enough, in the early 1990s, his organization began to be challenged by another nominally independent ethnic rebel organization in northern Myanmar called the United Wa State Army, which put pressure on his leadership. As a result, Kunsa's surrender to the Burmese government coincided with, and may have been motivated by, a loss of support from other Shan leaders. And after his frontman within the Mong Thai army died of cancer in 1991, his control over the organization began to weaken. So after the death of his frontman, he called a Shan parliament, attracting hundreds of representatives from across the region. At the meeting, he declared the creation of an independent Shan state with himself as president. But many of his rivals from within the Mong Thai army refused to accept his leadership, claiming that he was using his independence movement primarily as a front for his drug-running operations, and formed a rival Shan organization called the Shan State National Army in response. Despite that, Kunsa continued exporting his heroin through a network of underworld contacts based in Thailand, Yunnan, Macau, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Some of his business associates believed that he was only a frontman for underworld Chinese drug interests and many were terrified of him. But by 1995, the DEA managed to discover and break the link between Kun Sa and his foreign brokers. As a result, his income began to decline and he started to consider retirement. In public, the Burmese military claimed that they wanted to hang Kun Sa. They carried out small raids against him and performed public bonfires of quote-unquote heroin, which was mostly stones and grass. But despite the Burmese leadership's public attitude towards Khun Sa, they understood that he had long controlled Burma's most lucrative crop, which was estimated to generate around $600 million a year in 1997. By the 1990s, he had co-opted many of the most high-ranking military leaders in the country, by 1996, they made a secret agreement for Khun Sa to surrender to the Burmese government, understanding that he would have to receive government protection and that he wouldn't be extradited. So on January 5, 1996, he surrendered to the Burmese government, gave up control of his army, and moved to Rangoon with a large fortune. And his exit from the drug game directly correlated with a decline in opium production in the Golden Triangle. However, one prominent theme that you may have noticed throughout the story of Khun Sa's life was the insane levels of corruption that allowed him to go on as a drug lord for so long and even leave the trade unscathed. And it's corruption like this that allows the Golden Triangle's drug trade to thrive unabated. Official complicity in the Golden Triangle drug business comes in two different forms, corruption in general, and politically motivated alliances between the gangs involved in the trade and the militaries of governments in the region. And though there is no accurate estimate of how much the Golden Triangle drug trade and related criminal activities generate annually, it's believed to be in the billions of dollars. Regardless, with the vast amounts of money involved in the various businesses and the low salaries of local law enforcement personnel and government officials, it's hardly surprising that many of them end up accepting bribes. 
And as we get into the corruption side of the drug trafficking, it's important to remember that while most criminals may live outside the law, they have never been outside society. And in parts of Asia, a symbiosis between crime, big business, and the government has existed for long periods of time. And the one that we're mostly going to be focusing on is the one that began with the Vietnam War in the 1960s and 70s. Drug traffickers benefited from the U.S. presence because they provided the country with valuable information, and in return, effectively got carte blanche to carry out their illicit activities, including involvement in the opium trade. The nationalist Chinese armies were among them, as were the local hill tribe armies in Laos, which had been raised to fight the communist Patet Lao, as well as the North Vietnamese. But Myanmar's KKY project is perhaps the most blatant example of how an official authority has used armed militias to fight anti-government rebels. Even after those militias were disbanded in 1973, the policy has remained the same, and there's two pretty big examples of the government protecting them. The first example is a man named Lo Zing Han, the local KKY home guard commander in Kokang, who was arrested the same year the militias were disbanded. Not for drug trafficking, because he had permission from the government to carry out such businesses, but for high treason and rebellion against the state. In 1973, he had forged a brief alliance with the Shan State Army, a politically motivated ethnic army fighting the government in Yangon. And although he was sentenced to death for treason, he was pardoned during a 1980 amnesty. He subsequently returned to his old home in northern Shan State, where he formed a new people's militia force and became a prominent businessman. His company, Asia World, even grew to become one of Myanmar's biggest conglomerates, and it has been involved in the various construction projects throughout the country. Another former government ally that was saved after his fall from power is, of course, Khun Sa. He was arrested for the very same crime as Zing Han for doing the very same thing in 1969, engaging in talks with the Shan State Army, before being released in 1974 after a deal was secretly brokered by a powerful Thai general named Kriangshak Chomanan who from 1977 to 1980 served as prime minister. Afterwards, Kunsa went down to the Thai border where he founded a new army known as the Shan United Army and set up a base in northern Thailand just miles away from the Myanmar border. But his presence in Thailand became an international embarrassment as opium refineries located on both sides of the Thai-Myanmar border turned out huge quantities of heroin. Then, in 1982, Thai security forces pushed him and his SUA into Myanmar. The troops that attacked him had to come from other parts of Thailand because those based at or near Khun Sa's base were on his payroll. But he soon built up a new headquarters at a new area of Thailand and resumed his relationship with Thailand's security agencies. He provided Thai authorities with intelligence from inside Myanmar and the border area between it and China. His organization also invested huge sums of money into construction projects and retained businesses in Thailand. At the same time, Kunsa established a working relationship with Myanmar's military and intelligence services, who again tolerated his presence in their country in return for fighting ethnic and communist rebels. So his new base was never attacked by the Myanmar army, but in January 1995, Kunsa decided to surrender and move to Yangon. His army was disbanded, and huge amounts of money were transferred to Myanmar banks and invested in a transport company and import-export businesses. 
Today, however, drug lords aren't nearly as public and flamboyant as Lozang Han and Kun Sa. They keep a lower profile, and methamphetamines, rather than opium and its derivative, heroin, are the main drugs being produced and traded by this new generation of traffickers. But the relationship between them and the Myanmar military remains the same. In exchange for fighting the country's abundance of ethnic rebel forces, the traffickers get permission to trade in drugs and use the proceeds to build up local business enterprises. As a result, the region remains an international powerhouse in the drug game. For example, much of the opium grown in the Golden Triangle in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s was refined into a super pure form of heroin known as China White, also known as heroin number no. 4. Favored by IV drug users in the US, it was stronger and cheaper than heroin from Turkey, Iran, and Afghanistan that circulated during the 1960s. Golden Triangle Opium was also made into heroin number no. 3, smoking heroin, favored by addicts in Southeast Asia. Most of China White was refined from opium in remote but sophisticated jungle laboratories. And in the 1990s, these laboratories also began producing amphetamines like ice, which are very popular in Asia as well as in Europe and the US. And after the crackdown on opium and heroin production in Thailand in the 1980s, most of production was done by opium farmers in Myanmar and heroin labs in Myanmar, Thailand, and Laos. And there remained a steady increase of opium production in the Golden Triangle in the 1980s and 90s. About 4,000 tons or nearly a million pounds of opium was produced in the Golden Triangle in 1995, most of it from northeast Myanmar. Opium and heroin base produced in northeastern Myanmar are transported to refineries along the Thailand-Burma border for conversion into heroin and heroin base. Most of the finished products are shipped across the border into various towns in North Thailand. Most of the finished products are shipped across the border into various towns in North Thailand and down to Bangkok for further distribution to international markets. For a time, much of the opium and heroin smuggled out of the Golden Triangle was carried by mule trains. In the past, most of it was transported through remote mountains in Thailand beyond the reach of police and trucked to Bangkok or was transported on commercial ships through Taiwan to North American cities. And as routes between Burma and Thailand were shut down, new routes opened up through China, Vietnam, Laos, India, and Cambodia. Now, much of the opium and heroin smuggled out of the Golden Triangle goes through China and to a lesser extent Laos, Vietnam, and India. Some leads through Yangon and is shipped to destinations in Australia, Europe, and the United States. But most of that goes through China is smuggled into the Yunnan province where it is delivered to Chinese crime syndicates who ship the heroin to Shanghai, Hong Kong, and other coastal cities. Where it is loaded onto one of thousands of ships bound for North America, Europe, and some intermediary points. Heroin from Southeast Asia was originally brought to the United States by couriers, typically Thai and U.S. nationals, traveling on commercial airlines. California and Hawaii were the primary U.S. entry points for Golden Triangle heroin, but small percentages of the drug were also trafficked into New York City and Washington, D.C. And while Southeast Asian groups had success in trafficking heroin to the United States, they initially had difficulty arranging street-level distribution. However, with the incarceration of Asian traffickers in American prisons during the 1970s, 
contacts between Asian and American prisoners developed, and these contacts have allowed Southeast Asian traffickers access to gangs and organizations distributing heroin at a retail level. But by the early 1990s, West African, primarily Nigerian criminal organizations emerged as major traffickers of Southeast Asian heroin, with 660 West Africans being arrested in the United States for heroin trafficking in 1991 alone. Instead of attempting to smuggle a large shipment hidden amongst legitimate seaborne cargo, Nigerian traffickers would typically recruit many low-level non-Nigerian couriers to transport a couple of kilos of heroin at a time. Through regular airline routes from transshipment points in Asia such as Singapore to Western Europe or the Eastern United States. And once the heroin arrived at its final destination, it was transported to cutting and packaging mills where it was diluted and packaged for retail or street level sale. And it was through this extensive history with really supplying the world's drug trade that the Golden Triangle has been able to remain a force. But like I've mentioned a couple times, it was in the 1990s that the region started to shift away from heroin towards the production of synthetic drugs. And today, meth has become the financial backbone of Asian drug trafficking organizations. Drugs originating from the Golden Triangle are not only being smuggled and sold within the region, but further afield to East and South Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. Some reports have even indicated that Mexican cartels were impacted by the pandemic and couldn't get their hands on precursor chemicals, a vital ingredient to produce meth, and as a result, couldn't meet the North American demand. So a certain Asian competitor known as Sam Gore stepped in and used this opportunity to increase their market share. Sam Gore, known simply as the company, has drug labs and factories in the Golden Triangle and is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, global drug cartel. Authorities estimate that it generated between 8 and $17 billion in revenue from meth in 2018 alone, most of which probably came from the Golden Triangle. They're also alleged to control 40% of the entire Asian Pacific methamphetamine market while also trafficking heroin and ketamine. And it's even alleged that Sam Gore was responsible for leading the shift away from plant-based to synthetic drugs. But it seems to have been a profitable switch because the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime estimated that the drug trade in the region in 2020 generated profits of around $71 billion, with meth accounting for $61 billion of it. However, despite the switch to synthetic drugs, the region still produces an insane amount of opium. And after production estimates hit a low of 400 tons in 2020, they spiked in 2022 to an estimated 870 tons or nearly 2 million pounds of opium, in spite of unfavorable growing conditions and forced government eradication efforts. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show and tune back in next week for part 2 of episode 47 when we'll be talking about all the other facets of organized crime in the Golden Triangle, including wildlife and arms trafficking, money laundering, and the illegal gem trade. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.